Oh, it's a good series. It's good for me because um, I get to spend a week with it. And because of the podcast, you can too. A couple of uh, scripture texts today. I want to read one from the New Testament and then our primary text from the Old Testament from 1 Kings chapter 19. But first of all, from Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And the blessed, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it and wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel as king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Minshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meloah. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every uh, every mouth that has not kissed him. Two weeks ago, I had dinner with a good friend, Tim Redman. He and Deb are moving back to Boston after years uh, here at Hebron and in Pittsburgh. And so we were on the telephone arranging that dinner meeting, and he said, where do you want to go? And I said, there's no question where we're going to go. We're going to Tesoro's in Bloomfield. And the reason we went to Tesoro's is because what happened there about, um, well, eight or nine years ago, Tim and Deb had just moved into uh, Pittsburgh, and they had friends down from Boston, and they were stripping wallpaper. 
They were there all weekend and working hard, and about uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, the Redmond said to their guests, Where would you, what would you like to eat? And they said, hamburgers. And so the Redmonds took them to arguably the best hamburger place in Pittsburgh, to Soros. But on the way, Tim said to his friends, listen, this place is a small restaurant. It has two sides. We may have to split up in order to get a table. Their friend said, that's fine. And so they get there, and the line's out the door, and finally they get to the front, and the Redmonds go on the right side, and their friends go on the left. And after about an hour, the Redmonds come over to pick up their friends, and they can't find them, and then they find them at the bar, sitting next to a perfect stranger talking. And so Tim walks up and says, did you tell him why you're here? And the guy from Boston said, well, we're here to help our friends strip wall. No, no, tell him the real reason you're here. The man said, well, one of the reasons we're here is because our son is coming back from Iraq. He's been there for a year. And when he was at Fort Campbell, he drank yingling beer for the first time and loved it. Well, you can't get yingling in Boston. And the guy said, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Your son has been in the army in Iraq for a year. And he's coming back to this country and he likes yingling. And with that, he pulled out 20 bucks and put it on the bar and said, here, the yingling's on me. And as soon as I heard that story, I said, that's Pittsburgh. And Tim said, you're right, it is. And ever since I've heard that story, whenever I've gone somewhere and they said, tell me about Pittsburgh, I tell them that story. I could say to them, well, Pittsburgh's full of kind people. I could say that Pittsburgh's full of people that want to get under the surface, but nothing sucks you in like a story. Stories grab hold of our hearts. They open our minds. They enable us to understand at a much deeper level. Do you think it's by accident when God communicated with us, he told us stories? The Bible is full of stories. It's a story book. Isn't it interesting when Jesus came, God in the flesh, he came telling stories. Stories grab you where you live. Remember John, how he he opens his gospel in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The word was God, the word word there is logos. And every Greek reading it would know that he's talking about logic. He's talking about the order of things. He's talking about the glue of the universe. In the beginning was the logos. Every Greek would understand that. But John says the logos became flesh. And let me tell you his story. See, the Bible's full of stories. And there is no more spectacular story in the entire Bible than 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's one of the greatest victories that anyone ever achieves in the Bible. And yet, within four verses of that victory... Elijah says to God, kill me. He goes from the height of victory to the depths of despair in four verses. There's no one in the Bible 
who is lower or more needy than the prophet Elijah in chapter 19. So I move the question, how is it possible? How is it possible to gain a great victory and then be in the depth of despair in a matter of minutes? Well, let's look at it. First of all, notice the context. 1 Kings chapter 18, in that chapter we read this, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I am not the troubler of Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Ahab was king of Israel for 22 years. The Bible says, all of the kings before him, all of their wickedness put together was not as much as a wickedness propounded by this man Ahab. And it all started when he got married. <laughs> he married a, the daughter of a foreign king. Her name is Jezebel, and she, her name is synonymous with wickedness and backstabbing. Political alliance marriages were common back then. Some say they're even common today. But if a king like Ahab wanted to secure more power, he might choose to marry the daughter of a foreign king. And so he did. He married Jezebel. And as soon as Jezebel comes into the place of power, she sends out an edict that all of the prophets of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, all those prophets are to die. And there's a mass execution. And she replaces the prophets of God with the priests of Baal. Now there were two gods at work here. They were the fertility cults of Canaan. Baal was the male god, god of fertility, and Asherah was the female. Asherah had priests who were feminine, and Baal had male priests. And when all of that happens, God's not happy. And he sends drought. It's one of the largest, most widespread, long-standing droughts in human history. It lasts three years. And in the third year, the prophet Elijah comes to Ahab with a challenge. And he says, gather all 450 prophets of Baal and all 400 prophetesses of Asherah and have them meet me on Mount Carmel in the same place where your wife Jezebel destroyed the altar of the living God. And those priests and priestesses will build an altar there and they'll cut a bull in half and they'll lay both halves on the altar. And then they will cry out to their God, and the God who answers with fire, He is God. It's one of the most vivid stories in Scripture. These 950 priests cut the bull, they build the altar of wood, they put the pieces on the altar and they begin to cry out. The Bible says they cry, they wail for six hours. 
After three, they began to cut themselves. Bloodletting was a, was a symbol and a sign that might agitate the deity to do something. They begin to call out. They fall on the ground. And after three hours of this with no fire, Elijah gets a little bit haughty and he starts taunting them. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone on vacation. Maybe, and this is in the Bible, maybe he's relieving himself. Call a little louder. Cut a little deeper. And after six hours, the Bible says these 950 false priests, they're exhausted. So Elijah goes and he takes some wood. And he builds an altar in this place where the altar was. He cuts the bull in half and lays the pieces there. And then he gives this order. He says, bring jars, and it's thought they're about 40 gallons apiece. Bring jars full of water, 12 of them. And pour them on the altar. In addition to the wood, he brings 12 stones that symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. He, they, they dig a trench all the way around the altar, and it's fairly deep. And the Bible says after they pour all the wa water over the halves of the, of the bull and all of the stones and the, and the wood, the water is so deep it fills the trench. And then he prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their hearts back. And the Bible says as soon as he finishes that word, a fire falls from heaven and it incinerates everything. The Bible says the wood's burned, the stones are consumed, all the water in the trench is licked up, and everyone who's witnessing this, many thousands of people fall on their face, as well as the, the prophets or the priests of Baal. And then Elijah says to some of the people of Israel, kill them all. And they kill 950 false priests. And then Elijah goes to Ahab, who's seen all this, and he said, you know, you better hitch up your chariot and get home before it starts raining. The Bible says within a verse or two, it pours. Now that's the context. Notice the conflict. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. In four verses, he goes from the height of Carmel to sitting under a broom tree wanting to die. And there are some commentators who suggest this is an editor's error. 
I mean, there is no way that a guy like Elijah, full of the Holy Spirit, can go from euphoria to depression in such a short time. This has to be an editor's error. 19 shouldn't follow 18 so closely. And you know, when you read that, you say, this tells me a lot more about the commentator than about Elijah. Do you know in chapter 11 of Numbers, Moses asked God to kill him? That's after he saw the burning bush. That's after he witnessed all ten plagues on Egypt. That's after he's been brought with all the people, 600,000 through the Red Sea. He wants to die. It's not after a defeat, it's after victory, after victory, after victory. Now he wants to die. I think of Jonah, chapter 4. He says to the Lord, kill me, I want to leave. That's after he's had a whale of an experience. (laughs) It's after God's been incredibly gracious to him. It's after he's been forgiven. So what do these guys have in common with Elijah? Their depression is after a great victory. After they see God do amazing things, fear sets in and hopes are dashed. Think of Moses' hope. After the Red Sea, these people ought to no longer grumble. They shouldn't complain. And yet they do. God, you called me to lead a bunch of jerks. And I want out. How about Jonah's complaint? Lord, I wanted you to judge the Ninevites. I didn't want you to save them. That's why I ran in the first place. And when you forgave me, I thought you would see the light and do what I wanted you to do, and that's wipe them out, but instead you saved them. Wipe me out. You see, Elijah believed this. That if Ahab and Jezebel and all the priests of the false god and all the people of Israel, if they would see the power of God displayed in this fire from heaven, if they would have that experience on Carmel, they would know that there's no other God but God and they would follow Him and they would love Him. And yet what happens? The Bible says in those four verses when Ahab gets back to the to the palace and tells Jezebel what happened she puts out this order may what happens to me or may what happened to my priests happen to me if I don't kill you by tomorrow and he's full of fear you see what the commentators miss is the depth of our weakness What the commentators miss is the depth of our own sin and depravity. We all have two basic psychological needs. To love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And now Elijah feels as though he's worthless because everybody's after him and all he can think about is himself. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. It tells us just like it is. Some of our greatest points of despair are after our greatest victories. There is an eternal conflict in us 
And it's often brought out after we think that nothing could go wrong. Third, notice the comfort. Look at verse 5. And Elijah lay down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Rise and eat. Now think of this. Elijah has begged God to kill him, and instead God feeds him. In fact, when you think about the difference between the way God came to Job and the way he came to Elijah, it's incredible. He came to Job in a whirlwind. He comes to Elijah in a gentle touch. He comes to Job and says, Stand up and I'll ask you some questions. He comes to Elijah and says, Rise and eat. And yet God does for Elijah exactly what He does for Job. He gives them exactly what they need. Elijah's emotionally spent. He thought if God sent fire, it would end his problems. He got it so wrong. He thought if God just answered his prayer and sent fire, everything would be fine. He thought that the people of Israel, when they saw the miracle, would follow the Lord. God doesn't call him to repent. God doesn't challenge him. He gives him rest. He gives him exactly what he needs at that time. He not only gives him rest, he gives him food. The Bible says the angel touches him and says, Arise and eat. And you think to yourself, eat what? And the Bible tells you, a cake. A cake. The angel says, Rise and eat. You say, sir, what kind of food, what kind of cake is this? It's the first time in recorded history we read about angel food cake. The angel brings cake. It's angel food cake. And the angel gives him comfort. And then there's one other thing the Lord does to comfort him. He sends him on a journey. Jerry is famous for saying when God wants to teach you something, he sends you on a journey. That's exactly what God does with Elijah. He wants to teach him something, so he sends him on a journey. In fact, he says to him, I want you to eat so you have strength for the journey. You know where he sent him? He sent him to Mount Horeb. Exactly the same place he sent Moses. It's called Sinai too. And when he gets there, the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah could have said, Lord, you told me to come here. But instead he says, I'm the only one left. They've killed all of your prophets. And the Lord says, in effect, you're not even close. There are 7,000 of my prophets that haven't bowed their knee to Baal or kissed him. You're not alone. And yet he thinks he's alone. 
You see, in all of his pain, all he can think of is himself. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so discouraged and so despondent that you think there is no one besides you? You get so insular, so myopic, that all you can see is yourself. Look what the Lord does. He says, Moses, go up on that mountain. And when he gets there, the Lord sends a wind. And the wind is so strong, it breaks apart rocks. But God's not in the wind. Then the Bible says he sends an earthquake and he shakes the entire mountain and God isn't in the earthquake. And then he sends fire. And just days before, or a month and a half before, he had sent fire and God was in that fire, but now he sends fire and God's not in that fire. Earth, quake, wind, and fire. You know, when you read the Bible, there are three signs of God's judgment. Earthquake, wind, and fire. But God's not in those. Instead, he's in a still, small voice. Why? Because what the Lord is saying to Elijah is, I'm not, I have not come to judge. I've come to dispense grace. Fourth and finally, notice the conclusions. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Do you see what God's doing? He's returning Elijah to his ministry. He had quit his ministry. You say, how do you know that? Because in chapter 18 it says, he leaves his servant behind. Elijah had left his ministry. He left his servant behind. But notice what happens after the exposure. He gets back to his ministry. Just like the whirlwind changed Job, this whisper changes Elijah. He's sent back into ministry. He goes from fear to faith. He goes from walking in his own way, seeing only himself, to walking God's way, hearing the Lord speak. And you know what the Lord speaks to him? Three lessons. And like I said last week, don't fear, they're quick. First lesson He teaches him about the world. In his pride, when he looked at everyone else, he was on the one hand too optimistic and on the other too pessimistic. Let me just explain what I mean. He thought that all the people needed was a miracle. And they'd get rid of their idols and they'd follow God. He's just like those religious leaders at the time of Jesus. Show us a miracle. Show us another sign that we might believe. All we need is a sign. If you show us a sign, we'll believe. And that's a lie. Because it discounts the sinfulness of sin. It discounts our human heart. It's based on an overly optimistic view of people. He thought all God needed to do was strut his stuff and everybody would fall in line. You know the problem with that? 
If you see one miracle, you've got to see another and see another and see another. And you never follow God. You follow the power. That's not his only problem. In his pride, he thought he was a special case. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left to do your work. I never signed on for this, but look what the Lord says. I want you to go and anoint Hazel as king over Syria. You see, I'm God of everyone. The first act of ministry I want you to perform is to anoint a pagan king. Can you imagine how weird that is to a Hebrew prophet? And yet the Lord, what he's saying is, listen, buddy, get your eyes off yourself. In fact, I am the God of the universe. There's only one God and you're not him. There are 7,000 prophets of mine in Israel. They haven't bowed their knee. You see, Elijah, you're blind. In your pride, you've not only been too positive in your assessment of other people, you've been too negative in your assessment of other people. You're not alone. You thought you were in charge. In your pride, you missed all the sinfulness of sin and the gracefulness of grace. But that's not all he learned. In the still small voice, he learns that he doesn't need to die. You know something? He never will. He doesn't need to give up his ministry. He needs a rest. He needs distance. He needs to stop taking himself so seriously. And who is it that shows him that? God. You lay down. You rest. It's not time for a challenge. Time for comfort. And then there's one last thing he learns, and that's about God. It's the most important lesson that he learns. He learns that it's not the fire that changes people. It's the still small voice. It's not the miracle that touches the heart. It's the Word of God. That's what changes the heart. It's the Word of God, which is the Word of grace. You know why Elijah is depressed? The same reason Jonah was depressed. He thought that God's judgment would change everything. I love what Martin Luther says. Judgment is God's strange work. Judgment's God's strange work. In other words, that's not his primary work. His primary work is not to judge, it's to dispense grace. And there's no better illustration of that in the Bible than John the Baptist. It's near the end of his life. He's in prison. He's about ready to be beheaded. And he's doubting whether his cousin Jesus really is the Messiah. And so he sends his disciples. Why does he doubt that? Because Jesus is not judging. He's being gracious. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus with a question, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Because you're not acting like the Messiah should act. What does Jesus say? You go back and you tell John what you see and hear. The deaf hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. 
the poor, have the good news preached to them. In other words, grace is breaking out. You see, John's in prison. He's about to be beheaded. He thinks he needs an earthquake. He thinks he needs a great wind. He thinks he needs a fire. But what he needs is the opposite. He needs grace. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, Elijah and John the Baptist are linked? They're linked in every way. They're linked in their error. Believing that God's primary purpose is to judge, it isn't. It's to save. That's what Elijah comes to realize at Horeb. God's main work is not to judge. And aren't you glad? Because if it was, we'd all be doomed. You see, that's what Luther came to understand. In his darkest moments, Martin Luther came to recognize that it doesn't take a whirlwind, it doesn't take an earthquake, it doesn't take fire to change a heart. It takes a still small voice that says, my main business is grace because I reserve my judgment for myself. Do you see this? There's only one person who's ever faced the full fury of God's wrath and judgment. And because he did, that means even on your worst day, you can know the truth. And the truth is this. Grace, God's grace, never, ever, ever fails. Think about that. Amen.